from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this week's show, bees and flies. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. John Rady, who will discuss exercise and the brain. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Rocketron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? It's that time of the year again, right? It is that time of the year when we talk about science, right? So are you chicken? I'll have to check my DNA. Question would be, is the T-Rex a chicken? And actually, if you've been reading an issue of Discover Magazine, there's some evidence now suggests a more direct linkage between the bird and the dinosaurs that have been around millions of years ago. Finger looking good, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, with 11 herbs and spices, of course. Paleontologist Mary Schweitzer at North Carolina University has found that the soft tissue in a T-Rex, their proteins seem to be similar to chicken collagen. And so this adds to the evidence that indeed the birds are descendants or at least very closely related to the dinosaurs from millions of years ago. There's been strong evidence suggested, but this is one of the more, um, the chemical level, something that suggests a really strong linkage that we hadn't seen before. And in fact, I believe earlier there was a Harvard study uh, carried out by Chris Oregon who tried to estimate how much DNA dinosaurs had. And one of the interesting things that he found was these huge creatures, the dinosaurs, they had small genomes, which are comparable to the ones that birds have today. Lends even more credence to the theory that these two species are somehow related. So I guess if anyone's interested, fascinating update in Discover Magazine's edition. All right, well, moving swiftly on from chickens and T-Rexes to something more important. What's the most important thing that you need to pay attention to? Some body language. The thing you need to be paying attention to is location, location, location. And that's apparently what a group of researchers led by geneticist Brian Fowler of the University Children's Hospital in Basel, Switzerland did. They were looking at a condition known as vitamin B12 deficiency. There's a rare genetic disorder which results in the inability to break down vitamin B12. And the problem that this results in is can be threefold. You can develop a condition known as homocysteinuria, you can develop another condition called methylmalonic aciduria, or you can develop a third condition which basically has elements of both conditions. And it has been a mystery for quite some time how exactly three conditions could develop from the inability to break down B12. And so the researchers found a gene that they dubbed MMADHC, which they found that if you restore the gene in mice that were deficient for it, you could recover the ability to break down vitamin B12. Okay. But what they went on to find out is that if you look at different parts of the gene, mutations in different parts of the gene actually correlate very strongly with the three different conditions that you find. And what they speculate is that uh, if you have a mutation in one part of the gene, that that results in homocysteinuria. If you have a mutation in the other end of the gene, it results in the methylmalonic aciduria. And of course, you have a mutation in the middle. This seems to correlate with both conditions. And so in theory, the mutations result in mutations in the protein, which then result in different types of deficiencies in breaking down vitamin B12. Oh, okay. 
So it was very fascinating work, uh, but according to co-author David Rosenblatt, he says that this still needs to be confirmed, knocking out those parts of the genes. Anyway, so this is, again, very fascinating and of interest to people looking at the breakdown of vitamin B12. Again, it was published in a recent edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. John Rady will join us to discuss exercise and the brain. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, we're all aware that exercise is essential for maintaining physical fitness, but perhaps less appreciated are the benefits that exercise can have for improving mental fitness. Well, how are exercise and the brain related? Join us today to discuss this issue is Dr. John Rady. Dr. Rady is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, author of numerous scientific publications and books, including Driven to Distraction and A User's Guide to the Brain. His most recent work, Spark, the revolutionary new science of exercise and the brain, explores this issue for a general audience. Dr. Rady, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Great to be with you. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think a lot of people, you know, they probably know about the physical benefits of exercise, but how can exercise actually help improve our brains? Oh, it does it in so many ways. I always tell people nowadays that exercise is really done for our brain. It's medicine for our brain, and all the beneficial effects we see for the body are just welcome side effects because it does so much to continue to challenge our brain all the time. And, and with that challenge and recovery period after the challenge, we get a lot of growth and maintenance. For instance, we develop collateral circulation much as we do in the heart. So when we're exercising, we make more tributaries in so we don't get blockages. The same thing happens in the brain. But more importantly is that just physical exercising challenges all of our nerve cells in our brain so we begin to increase the neurotransmitter load that we have and we all know some of the neurotransmitters that we in psychiatry have been fascinated with over the past 30 years and that's dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine. Well, with the exercise, those go up. So that can have a similar effect to some of the psychiatric medicines that we have. And I think uh, nowadays people are beginning to recognize that, that exercise is truly medicine and it may in many cases be certainly a welcome complement to medication, but in some cases even used instead of medicine. For mood, for anxiety disorders, to help deal with stress, to help deal with attention deficit disorder. You mentioned I'd written a bunch of books about ADD and we've always talked about the wonders of exercise as part of the treatment plan for people with attention deficit disorder because one of the things we see across age groups is that with exercise the ability of the brain to attend to focus to remain focused to screen out uh, stimuli 
is improved, no matter what the age. And we all hear about how exercise now is, is useful to help stave off the cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease. The numbers are pretty startling. If you begin exercising in, in middle age and continue just following what the Health and Human Services directives have been recently, exercising four to five times a week for 40 minutes, and that's brisk walking. You will prevent your own cognitive decline by 10 years, and you will cut the risk of having Alzheimer's in half. So those kinds of figures people need to be aware of and sort of pay attention to because not only does we know that it helps manage the mood, but it helps prevent the decline in the future. Hmm. One of the other fascinating possibilities that sort of brought up in the book is that it might even spur the growth of new neurons. Right. Well, that's the real sexy part of what exercise does. That's why people in neuroscience really got turned on, if you will. We, just, we discovered in 1999 that we humans are making new nerve cells every day. This was something that we certainly didn't know or believe before that. But we know that that's true. And what was found was that exercise, physical aerobic exercise, is one of the best ways to increase the development of new nerve cells in one of the areas of our brain where we can do that, which is an area called the hippocampus, which is sort of like Grand Central Station for memory. And we make new nerve cells there, and this is linked up to people think, improving memory, certainly with rats and mice where we can do good neuroscience and see what happens. We see an increase in the number of new cells, and with that we see an improvement in learning and memory in the animals as well. That have other studies out showing that it prevents the beginning of Alzheimer's in animals that are destined to get it. It stops it from developing and can even reduce and melt some of the amygdaloid plaques and amyloid plaques that might occur as signs of aging. My first chapter is about this wonderful school, however, in Naperville, Illinois, that has really made fitness part of their program and evolved it over the past 18 years, where 19,000 kids in this school district are exercising in a fitness-based physical education every day for 45 minutes. In 2002, when I learned about this school, only 3% of them were deemed overweight. And the same year, they lobbied to take the international science and math tests on their own as a sole entry. And usually the United States competes with other countries and we're always in the team somewhere. However, this year, Naperville was number one in the world in science and number six in math. This got me very interested because obviously it wasn't taking away from their academic performance. In fact, it was perhaps boosting it. They have daily physical education with focus on fitness where they have heart monitors and keep track of being in their zone for a good part of that. They've reintroduced sports, but there everybody plays all the time. There's no sitting in the bleachers. There's no choosing teams. It's all assigned and you get going and you stay going throughout the, the period of time. And it's really been a model program for other schools to mimic and adapt to their own school district.
And you mentioned in the book that they've seen truancies decline and tentativeness increase as well, right? Right. And we're introducing or reintroducing fitness-based PE or gym in schools in the inner city even. One sees in Kansas City, for instance, they introduced it in the fourth and fifth grade and just really had 40 minutes a day of cardiovascular exercise, playing games, running, doing soccer, chasing, dodgeball, those kinds of things. But they kept the kids moving in this inner city school. And what they saw was, of course, at the end of the first year, and it wasn't fancy or complicated, but what they saw was there was an improvement in most of their physical measurements, including a decrease in their weight and BMI or their body mass index. But what was most interesting was that there was a 63% drop in what was called disciplinary referrals, which are calling the parents in or suspending the child from school for violence and aggressive acts. And this has been now replicated in another school district in South Carolina, where they added 40 minutes a day of the similar kind of activity. And in the first three months, they saw a 90% drop in complaints of aggression and violence. So it really leads to a better involved and cooperative and civilized student body. Uh, One of the assertions in the book is that we're really built to be constantly exercising. That's sort of what our bodies are built to do, and to be sedentary leads to all these kinds of problems. Right. If you look at it, exercise through an evolutionary perspective, what I call the lens of evolution, uh, you see why. Our genes were developed over half a million years when we were hunter-gatherers. That ended about 10,000 years ago. Our genes haven't changed much. And back then, we were walking 10 to 12 miles a day, and we were eating every now and then. So our genes are expecting us to be moving a lot, but also pushing us to eat very high caloric food if we can, and taking a break if we can, because they say it was on average we were moving that much. So you wanted to be sedentary if you could, but you couldn't back then. But our genes, now we can, And now it's not feast or famine because there's a McDonald's at every corner. We have certainly plenty of high caloric intakes to keep us from starving. And we don't have that push like we used to. Hmm. There are a number of other factors where you identify that exercise can be important. For example, decreasing stress and, of course, uh, help out of depression. Yes, it's a real stress reducer, and people know that, but they don't know why, I think. I mean, there are many levels does exercise really help to reduce stress. People think we just burn it off. But what you do is you're changing your brain. The more chronically fit you become, that is, the more often and, and regular you are with your exercise program, you change your stress triggers. That is, it takes more to get you to turn on the stress system in your brain and then the fight or flight system so that you you go into that you respond to the environment in in a ready to go into the stress response kind of mode and then you also do what we call stress inoculation exercise is a terrific way of producing stress for each of our brain cells and all of our cells in our body because it demands that the cells are working very very hard Uh, And so with that comes a lot of what I look at as toxic waste, the feared free radicals um, that are in the cell punching holes or into various things and changing the architecture of our intracellular proteins. Well, 
we do that with exercise, but what happens, evolution has sort of given us this great response, which is to recover. When that happens on a very uh, mild kind of stressor, and one that ends, you get an internal buildup of antioxidant enzymes, much like vitamin C and vitamin E that we take by at the vitamin shop, and people worry about so much. But you build it internally in the cell itself, as well as all kinds of other stress, toxic waste reducing proteins and hormones and all of that. We release a substance with exercise that uh, I've called miracle growth for the brain, which is really brain fertilizer. And this goes up quite a bit with physical exercise. It helps to regulate, like fertilizer, regulate the growth and health of the brain cells that we have. And it helps, one of those factors, it helps promote the growth of new brain cells. It keeps our brain plastic, that is, able to take in information and change the brain. That's what plasticity means. The brain changes, and we have the most changeable brain in the universe, and therefore, as far as we know, the brain that can learn the most which and change the most. And this plasticity is really valued, obviously, and it goes away when one gets overstressed and one gets depressed. And as we age, there's a decrease in, in those situations, and exercise helps to boost back the plasticity of our brains on its own. Mm. I'm curious, what types of exercise do you recommend? If you're sedentary, then you should start walking. Mm. I mean, that's what you do. You go for a walk, you go for a brisk walk, and then increase the distance. You don't have to tax yourself beyond what you can do. You certainly don't want to go out and overdo it right away. But the Health and Human Services directive is, is really to do brisk walking 40 minutes four or five times a week. And then add in some strength training as you go along and as you grow older. It's more important so that your muscles continue to get stimulated and grow and support the body. But the ideal kind of exercise is to do it with somebody because that keeps you at it. It keeps you at your program. You're more likely to stay with it if you're walking with somebody or if you're playing a sport. Uh, golf is a good exercise if you're carrying your clubs and you're not riding in a cart. Certainly tennis and all the other uh, interactive games, and that's great to do because they're fun. It's not something you have to worry about. Certainly swimming is another good one. But for most sedentary people, the, the way to get back in shape is to start walking and stay with it. What do you think is the current state of American health in terms of their exercise and the health of their brains? Well, I think that's why we're seeing so many problems mm -hmm. in, with obesity, with the diabetes increase, the obesity crisis now in the schools uh, because the children are following their parents. You know, example, which always happens. So we're seeing a huge increase in obesity, and especially as we age. I mean, as we go up past 70, it gets to be about 70% of people over 70 are overweight. And then you get into either frank diabetes or just mild cases of diabetes, which we know hastens cognitive decline. There's no, not even a question of that anymore, that not handling glucose well will make our brains age much, much quicker than they should be aging. So, I mean, it sounds like uh, really the old adage, I mean, just eat right and exercise frequently, right? 
Exercise frequently. You know, Hippocrates said that the way to treat a poor mood is to get out and walk and then walk some more. <laughs> and that's quite a long time ago that they had it right. And, and I think we all know that, but it's hard for us to get up and do it. We're prone to take a break, sit down, and play with our cyber toys, which are so wonderful, but yet they can make us their prisoners. Not only the addictive video games and TV and, and the Internet, but all the tools that we have available now keep us from really moving hardly at all. I'm curious, how did you yourself become interested in this uh, particular line of research? Well, I came to Boston in the 70s, right when the marathon craze was hitting. So everybody was running. And it was also the same time that neuroscience was really beginning. Certainly in psychiatry, we had wonderful drugs that were just being discovered, which were amazingly a big change from what had transpired in the past. But yet here was, I saw a program over in Norway that were admitting patients who were depressed to the hospital and offering them either a course of antidepressant medicine or an exercise program three times a day. And they were claiming their results were the same. And this really sort of stuck with me. And then I began to see patients who were marathoners, but they hurt themselves and couldn't marathon anymore, couldn't work out anymore. And first they became depressed, and then one patient who was uh, in his 40s came to me and he says, you know, I think I have what they call minimal brain dysfunction. Then later we called attention deficit disorder, and he was my first clue that there was a, a tie-in, uh, not just to mood regulation, but maybe to the attention system. So I began to be very interested and stayed interested ever since. Well, it is really a very fascinating topic and uh, certainly a very fascinating book. The book, again, is called Spark, the Revolutionary New Science of Exercise and the Brain. Dr. Rady, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science. Sure. And uh, by the way, people can go to my website, www.johnrady.com. Okay. Thank you. And you were just listening to Dr. John Rady discussing exercise and the brain. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Here we go. It is our supercomputer called the Grokatron 5000, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, fit as a fiddle or needs a workout. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they're fit or they need a workout and maybe a little reason why. Are you ready to play the game? 
I am. Okay, here we go. Person number one, fit as a fiddle, needs a workout. Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. Gosh, I think he needs a workout to get his brain cells working better so that we can uh, he can lead us out of this recession. Also, I think it would be great for his own self-care to deal with all the stress that he's under and to help him make better and better decisions. <laughs> uh, all right, number two is uh, pop star Britney Spears. <laughs> oh, Brittany. Well, I think she needs more than just working out, although that would be good. Uh, she should start walking from California to the East Coast, maybe, uh, as a way to deal with her many addictions and problems. And uh, certainly the more she puts into it, the more control she is going to find. Mm. Uh, number three is the governor himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold is probably fit as a fiddle, but under a lot of stress. <laughs> and again, I think the, the idea of exercise, aerobic exercise, not lifting weights so much, although that works to relieve, to do all the good things that I'm, I've talked about in the book and I talk about weight training. It does it, but it doesn't do it as well as aerobic exercise does. But he certainly could use some with your uh, budget deficit to maybe come up with some creative ideas to help you get out of the, the pits there. All right, so maybe a brisk run for Arnold then. Yeah. Uh, okay, number four is Donald Trump. Gosh, I, I, I don't know that exercise really helps with the hair growth or <laughs> anything like that. Boy, I don't know. He, he might be fit as a fiddle, you know? I mean, he seems like he's having a good time doing what he wants to do and uh, getting out in front of as many people as he can. So he's sort of on his game. So I, I don't think he needs to do any more than he does. Um, he probably exercises quite a bit. All right, and finally, number five, it's the president of the United States, George Bush. Well, George is a disappointment because George is an exerciser or was an exerciser. And, uh, you know, and is very keen on that. And I know Dr. Cooper is, is one of his doctors, uh, Ken Cooper, who is sort of the father of aerobics. And I know George was and is, I assume, continues to be someone who jogs a lot and bikes and is outside a lot. Uh, but, I, you know, I think he might be overdoing it a bit. Uh, you know, he should have stayed home a little more to uh, pay attention to what was going on in the world. You know, we only have a few more months, so that's what we, in, in the East Coast, that's the feeling, <laughs> counting the hours down. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Ray, I do want to thank you uh, for sticking around playing the game. And again, of course, talking about your book, which was called Spark, the Revolutionary New Science of Exercise and the Brain. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.